Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 39. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. On today's show, we'll be sharing our conversation with Catherine Darnstadt of Latent Design. We'll also be discussing the news of the Vana Venturi house, which has recently hit the market. This has been a very popular story on Arconnect among our commenters. And we have Denise Scott Brown joining us today from VSBA to talk a little bit about the history of the house and her hopes for its future. So, everyone doing well this week? Really great now that uh, Denise Scott Brown got to join us. That was a really lovely conversation. And getting to talk to someone so invested and obviously personally connected to the house was a great opportunity. Yeah, it was it was really amazing to put more historical context into this structure, which I think just adds so much more to the argument to preserve it and maintain its integrity. Especially because so many of the conversations that happen online on Arconnect in response to news stories like this happen between the nodes of teardown or house museum. And this conversation is a lot more nuanced and it's a lot more personal. So I wanted to point out that the the news that the Vonaventuri House was on the market, hit right as we were recording the podcast last week. And so we didn't address it at all, but it just threw me for a loop. I was kind of in a in a state of shock as we were recording the podcast last week. As it turns out, Orhan Ayuche posted it on Arconnect and he reported it from Realtor.com. Arconnect was absolutely the first place that I saw this news. So I think Arconnect scooped everyone on this because Orhan saw it on Realtor.com and, and posted the link. I think people were really surprised that this could happen because you think of it as this sort of eternal building, not just something that is, you know, an object that can be sold with between private hands. So that, I think, is part of what sparked this big conversation. And I I will say that the comments on the thread of the news item right now are at 139. And we have covered topics from, you know, real estate lingo in the realtor listing to Pruitt-Igoe to Roman history and all of the influences of the being at the Academy in Rome on Venturi and Philadelphia history and just style in general and the value of things per square foot. Like it's been this incredibly broad ranging conversation that touches on so many topics that architects should be aware of, need to be aware of, and need to be fluent in, frankly. So I've been taking a lot of various stances on it. One of the things I keep putting forward on that thread is that the interior of the house is just absolutely masterful. It's beautiful. And I was pleased that in the conversation we had with Denise, she spoke a little more about how those interiors came about. And um, it's a fascinating little piece of architecture. Yeah. And to get her to kind of chart this very long arc of the house's history from inception to present day was fantastic and so enlightening. So why don't we listen to our conversation? Let's go. Bob grew up in Philadelphia, but then he got a Rome fellowship. And after school at Princeton, where many interesting strands of thought about architecture around, one's more open perhaps to history than in some other places, but also modern and also very broadly cultural, so that ties of the sorts that I'm interested in, Bob was quite familiar with. And his parents sent him to Princeton, but you know, the, their family, Bob's mother came from very deep poverty as a child. I say it was not upward mobility, it was vertical takeoff. And then she's an educated lady quoting Santayana. And so he, he goes to Rome, the child of this great um, variety, you could say, and also Italian, Italian-American, so 
with books from Italy all around him as he was growing up, and their great love of architecture. And he's a fellow there, and he hit his stride in Princeton. That's where he really began to flourish um, academically, professionally, and all sorts of ways. And he gets to Rome, and he falls in love with that, and he just starts investigating all sorts of things. And like all foreign students, he also looks at his own country and tries to interpret it from that point of view. And then he comes back from all of that in 1956. I got to Rome in 1957. It was just a few months after he left. By the way, Lou Kahn had been there within that time, and so had Dave Crane. And all of those people have an influence on what was happening at Penn and also what was happening in that building. So now Bob comes back, and he begins to work for Lou, and he also, he's thinking, he tries to set up his own practice. And he's also talking with Lou a lot. And Lou is also under the influences, as I had been, of the Smithsons, particularly Peter Smithson. There are 15 years of correspondence between Lou and Peter in the Harvard archive. And so all of these are frequent influences on Bob, and Bob is an influence on Lou. It goes both ways. And this young man starts talking about um, all the things he thought about in, in Rome, also having discovered that whereas he went and sort of, uh, the proper way interested in Baroque architecture, because that's what the modernists were thinking of then, and Gideon was writing about, at the very end of his trip, he discovers mannerism and says, this is more interesting to me. So he comes back with an interest in mannerism, which Lou never does learn, but which the Smithsons were very much involved with in, in England and therefore also the Team 10 people. And he starts teaching, and there's an interesting time where I'm a student in, art, in planning and um, also eventually I got both degrees, the Master of Architecture and Planning. And there is a time when um, Dave Crane, who met um, Bob in Rome, uh, there's a big jury for the studio project that he was doing where Robert Scott Brown and I were students. And there's things Dave talks about to do with the street, the four faces of movement and the way streets behave as city builders as well as givers of access and as communicators, um, which was something I came to merit with a great interest in. And also, um, in this case, the important one is that a street is like a room, and he had pictures of Indian villages where all activities of life went on in the street. Quite soon after that, Lou starts talking about the, the street through the building and the street the corridor of the academic building as being the common room of the students, like the street in the Indian village. And if you look at the plans of the Vana Venturi house, you will see six early plans where Bob is a Khan groupie, and suddenly the last one where there's a street through the building. And just look at those plans, see where at the front door there is a main square. It's got marble tiles on it. And then the street goes on and up to, to a one-way stair, right up to the roof. And so the public spaces are on the big part of the street, and where it gets smaller, there are the rooms, much of the way you'd think of planning a city. And these, I don't think, were fortuitous. This was a time when um, 
there was a, a lot of, it, it was a civil rights movement, and there were many social scientists in the plan, in the architecture school, in the School of Fine Arts, but it attached to the planning department. And I was very influenced by both groups, and Bob and I, Bob had seen us at Robert and me at the faculty meet at, the, uh, at that student presentation, but we became friends, Bob and I, when I joined the faculty in 1960. So I was in on his last version of that plan. Not so much, I, I gave quits, but more than that, he was listening to what I was saying. And if you see complexity and contradiction that's happening at the same time, you see he begins to talk about Main Street at the end of that uh, uh, complexity and contradiction. I had been giving a studio which had a de design for 40th Street in Philadelphia, which is the main street in West Philadelphia by the university. So he's very influenced by the photography I do of everyday architecture and by the project I'm looking at. And that begins to creep in there. And, of course, there's much more to it um, later in the um, learning from Las Vegas. But in parallel... Holmes Perkins introduces series courses. He sees one being given to the planning school, and he thinks architects should do the same thing. And he, there's an introductory course in the first semester where every faculty member gives, this is what I believe about architecture. And in the second semester, Bob ran a series course, um, which Holmes invited him to do because he reasoned that having been to Princeton, he'd know more about history than most people. Well, those two courses really affected performance in the studio because I ran the first and Bob ran the second, and eventually I ran all the seminars and reading lists and everything for both courses and the connection of the lectures to the studio. Now there's all sorts of ways in which we connect while Bob is designing complexity and contradiction but particularly about the question of the circulation system and how activities tie in with circulation and ideas like that. Denise, what I wanted to ask about a little more was the complexity in the interior of the house. I think so much of the house is known through that iconic image of Vanna sitting in the chair on the front porch, but I have been in the house and other people who also have been, we all know that the interior space is just uh, incredible as an interior space. There's a beautiful complexity, but there's also the scale. And so could you talk a little about that and specifically as it relates to the the house being on the market now, do you think that people will come and see the house and understand that beautiful interior? Well, um, yes, I was going to take you then from the exterior to the interior, but let me talk about some of those influences which are right there on the house, which are interior and exterior, and then have a lot to say about that interior. Is that all right with you? Yes, yes, please. Okay, the house itself Bob goes there once a week. We drive him there. He sits there and looks at it for about a minute and a half, and then he blows it a kiss. And I think he's kissing the idea of his mother and his love of his mother, but also the idea of the house as a doll's house, as the way a child would draw it, uh, right. with a, a sloping roof and a chimney the child didn't quite go right and windows that didn't, the child didn't quite get right. He thinks of it as a porta pier, and he thinks of it as 
uh, inheritor of a Philadelphia tradition in houses. And he thinks of it as a modern house influenced by the Villa Savoie and a lot by Alva Alter. And so you put all that together as you approach that house, and then Lutchen teaches him how to enter the house. And then once you get inside, I came across an amazing article by a man called Joseph Frank, an architect who wrote it in 1930, where he says, you know, even in our modern houses, we have attics. And the attics are so much more interesting than the house itself. And you look in the attic, and it has lights that come from unusual places. And suddenly, single columns where you didn't expect them. And a mixture of spaces that all join together and a feeling of romance about it. And I thought, he's just described the one of Venturi House inside. Just that, but it didn't happen for you know, many, many years. And of course, he didn't know about us, and we certainly didn't know about him. And Bob never heard about him till I discovered him and found how interesting he was. And I think Bob thinks of it as a house that is a mixture of all of these things. But when you get inside, all of those views and vistas and tensions and of unusual shapes are in huge tension with each other. And your feeling is of one big room, which has these many subsets. And he's admired buildings in Rome, which have that quality, but they are classical or mannerist buildings, but where you, you sense three spaces and you also sense one space. And that's what he's done there. And then, of course, he adores the notion of the colonial cottage with a great big chimney, and he uses that, and then he wraps the staircase round the chimney. And I have a personal belief that every architect designs somewhere in the house a chapel. In every building, every architect has designed a chapel, a place of heightened emotion for the architect, if not anyone else. And I think that is the chimney with the staircase around it and going all the way up to the nowhere, up nowhere stair to a window up there. And so that's Bob's chapel. In other words, the servant's space, which Lou calls the servant's space, has become the chapel and the civic space. And that building in, inverts kind of the main space is more ordinary and the circulation space is what becomes civic, which is what you often get in streets and cities. Now, for a person living in the house, I've lived in it. If you sleep up in the bedroom upstairs, it feels like sleeping under a tent. And I used to go out on the porch and comb my hair in the morning. And down below, you get all this light coming in from different directions and the feeling of intercommunication and yet great comfort in sitting in it. You can sit in the living space and feel like it's a living space, not, not a passageway to somewhere else. And so it, it seems to have comforts of a kind that, that are more found in traditional houses than in modern ones. And then there's a beautiful relation to the, to the yard, and we would go there, and um, because Vana was living alone and the neighbors were not friendly and she didn't have friends around her, Bob used to say architecture is the opiate of the mother. <laughs> but we used to bring our friends there and have tea out on the lawn, and it's just lovely to sit there with the house behind you. So that's much for what I think people might enjoy in the house. The sense of privacy, too, is, is very nice and being surrounded. 
for what we would be looking for in someone who buys the house, I'd be happy to talk about. But you have some questions first? Yes, Denise, this is Amelia. I was wondering how the neighborhood received the house once it was first built and Vanna first started living there. Was there much talk about the design? You know, there's the Duke of Chestnut Hill, Charles Woodward. And Charles Woodward had kept it as a restricted neighborhood for years and years and years. No blacks, no Jews, just proper people who'd come down from Yale. And that's what he wanted. And they built a lot of rental housing so that they could rent to young wasps, basically, and keep the, 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 the neighborhood the way he wanted it to be. And one day I met Charles Woodward at a dinner. He turned out to be a charming old man who knew a whole lot about architecture. And by this time, I think his eyes are beginning to open. And you, you can't just do, as a Jew, I hate the fact of, that he wouldn't let anyone else in. And I was prepared to hate him. And said I had a long argument with him and a long discussion about what he felt and why. But when Bob came along and wanted to buy the property, he'd come from Yale. And he was sort of open-minded about it. And when this house came, he knew so much about why his father had built the other houses. He knew so much about the architecture of the other houses that he was kind of open to it. But the neighborhood is a very strange neighborhood, and they had always used that site as a shortcut. It's a panhandle site. You can walk right through it to go where you were going. And so they went on doing that, but they wouldn't wave at Vana. She would have liked the company. Only one little girl from one of the houses came by to talk with her now and then. And then there were four, no, three elderly Quaker ladies living in the house in the front, and they were very warm and friendly towards Vanna, but really no one else. That's why we brought all our friends there. And what about now that the house is up for sale in the private market? We considered, or on Arconnect, we were thinking, why has this house never been, or maybe has it been, ever up for consideration as a house museum, someplace that is maintained for visitors to take a part in the architectural history? Are you asking why has it not been turned into a public facility? Yes, or if there has been, an, or whether there or not there had been an attempt at all to do that. Well, no. Let me tell you. First of all, when Bob's mother went into a home for the elderly, Bob sold the house. He put it up for sale, and we could not move in. Our lives are too expensive. We just needed more room than that. And he did produce a design for bashing a kind of a, a big tower, a big squat tower up against it in a fascinating way. Somewhere in our archive, there's that design. But we, we, we realized we had to find a large old house. We needed the space and for various reasons. But for all that, when um, it went on sale, Tom Hughes, Thomas T. Hughes, a professor from Texas, could not believe it when he saw it was for sale and he bought it. And why would a professor have this knowledge in Texas of this house? Well, his field was history and sociology of technology. And he came to head the Department of History and, Technolo history and Sociology of Science at Penn. And he was there for maybe 30 years. And so his interest was the origins of modernism and of postmodernism. And we attended conferences for Tom in Berlin twice on this subject. And so he was an ideal person to have bought the house. And they selflessly 
with stewards of the house and showed everyone who wanted to see it, the house, in a very um, giving way. I mean, it messed their lives up and that you accept the fact that they loved doing it. And that went on as long as it possibly could until Agatha died and Tom became senile and went to live with his new wife in the South. And Agatha, the daughter, moved in and she'd had years of experience of this too and continued it. So we have had this amazing advantage of people who loved the house, maintained the house, and were happy to show it to people and to be stewards of it. I have seen enough through professionally and through the work we've done, which has been mainly academic work, to have huge mistrust of donating a house to an institution. First of all, the institution has, like a university, a president. And then the next president comes and everything the last president did was so wrong. And so all the policies change every five to ten years. As a planner for campuses, I am bedeviled by that. It's just crazy. doesn't make sense. But anyway, that's what happens. And I've seen this kind of debate with trustees where they say, the mission of this institution is education. Why did we ever acquire a house? as soon as you can. Now you're absolutely <laughs> stuck. You have no control whatsoever. Then I've seen agency debates where they say, we have all these little houses. We can barely manage them. We put renters in and they don't care a hoot for the house and the poor thing just to generate. And I've seen a change in policy in agencies like in Philadelphia where the old houses in Germantown get sold to people because they will look after them and love them better than renters will. So I'm a great believer that finding someone who will be fired by all these things I'm saying, including the fact that there's Bob sitting there once a week as long as he lives, as long as he can do it, just admiring it, you know, it's very, very uh, poignant that um, I'm hoping that we will find someone who will have that same sympathy and give us 30 more years of stewardship and then we'll work as hard as Agatha and I am working for the next 30 years. And there'll be our son Jim around to help too. Denise, this is uh, Ken. You spoke a little bit earlier about the house in context of the the time period it was constructed in the early 1960s. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw civil rights impact this or vice versa? Well, it wouldn't have to do with its construction. Um, Construction is interesting in itself because, you know, In the 1950s, industrial lightness was the mantra. And remember Buckminster Fuller said with huge sarcasm to a lady owner of a big chestnut hill-like house, Madam, how much does your house weigh? Well, I've seen what happened to those 1950s buildings on every campus. They are the ones scheduled for demolition because they just didn't last. And this building was at the end of that stage, just after that massiveness became the mantra, and now God knows it's back at lightness again, and I don't know how the buildings will survive. It's sort of the pendulum. So Violet's house is rather light in its construction, but it's pretty well detailed, and it hasn't been too bad. It hasn't had the problems you've seen in some of those 50s buildings, and certainly none of what they now call dingbat architecture in Los Angeles. It went up fast in that time because of their population explosion. But as far as the the civil rights movement, Penn Planning School was strongly involved and formulated a discipline called social planning. And postmodernism 
in fact, evolved in the, I think, after World War II or just before, and part of it was to do with theology of the Holocaust and to do with personal responsibility and loss of innocence. And then pop art became part of postmodernism. And all of these were things that I had been involved with in Africa and England in my education for various reasons. And when Bob and I got together, he was very fascinated. We'd had sort of parallel histories growing up. I, ethnics in Africa and Bob in America. And our families were kind of similar. Old ladies with foreign accents and black dresses and things like that. And then Nick Janopoulos, the engineer, did too. And we would borrow, borrow his family because neither of us had ours left. But anyway, so that kind of background we could share. And then and Bob's mother had been a socialist and a pacifist as a young woman. And so when he heard the things that Paul Davidoff was talking about and all of those, he wanted to hear more. And then talking about values and the tastes of other people and understanding them and finding creative interest in that, all of that sliding into our studies of Leviton. After Las Vegas, we did a, a studio called Learning from Leviton. All of that, what I mean by the social movement, influencing the house. But also, I was involved with um, stopping the Crosstown Expressway, which was on South Street in Philadelphia. And we worked as advocate planners, as Paul Davidoff called it. Bob's firm, my firm by then, we were working for them as volunteers, uh, working with social planners, producing counter plans to the city's plan to stop the expressway. And Alice Lipson, she was, that community group was, I think, the best client I ever had. But the whole situation there was very simpatico. And, you know, Bob's father's fruit and produce store had been on South Street. And that was the reason Alice would permit us to work for free for her. And they had a storefront office there. And we, I would go there and um, show, show plans there. And Bob would come, too, on occasion. And he loved it, too. And we were doing that work in parallel to the learning from Las Vegas work. And it was a, a, a group of communities of all different kinds, white and black and Irish, Italian, inner city. And the whole lot of them worked together. And as I say, we all managed to stop the expressway using a counter plan that we had produced. So that was, as I said, part of what Bob was very sympathetic to allowing me to do that. And it made us good friends in Philadelphia. Uh, particularly among the lawyers who were fighting to do the same thing. I want to tell you something else. I've written a manuscript, which is with the publisher now, and I'm going through a lot of all of this in that manuscript. In fact, you could call it a mess because it goes all over the place. But I did want you to know that I, I will have a, a book coming out at some point when they can finally tease apart what they want to publish of it and what they don't. And I presume cover a lot of this. We'd love to get to know that as soon as we can. And please share it with us as soon as it's available. That would be wonderful. Yes, I'd be happy to. So it seems to me I've probably 
done most of what you need me to do and given you far more than you can handle. <laughs> well, we, we really appreciate and are honored to have you on to, to share these stories behind the house. We really hope here at Arconnect that the house falls into the hands of people that, that appreciate it as much as you and Bob have. And again, thank you very much for joining us today. So after that slight slice of the Bonaventure House history, we were so glad to hear that Denise Scott Brown had even more to say and is going to be publishing a book on the subject to kind of chart the entire history. We're definitely looking forward to that and we'll hope to feature something on it in our connect in the near future. Also speaking of news items that came out just as we had finished last week's episode, as we couldn't cover them last week, also in the news very recently is the quite big splash of the decision to cancel Zaha Hadid's design for the Tokyo Olympic Stadium. This kind of came as a huge surprise to everyone, given that it had kind of been reassured over the last few weeks that despite escalating construction costs and just a giant price tag attached to the stadium, that nonetheless, Abe was going to go through with the design. It was all going to continue as planned and that the stadium would indeed be finished in time for the Rugby World Cup in 2019 and then definitely the Olympics in 2020. Now that is all up for question. It certainly is not going to be ready in time for 2019 and they still plan to have the stadium be ready for 2020, however, not with Zaha Hadid's design. So there will be a new international competition launched, and I believe by the fall, they plan to launch, Japan plans to launch the, launch the competition and have basically start the whole process over again. But this time in soliciting submissions to the competition, they will make sure that the construction cap as well as a design cap is met in the proposal. So this is huge news. Obviously, Olympic stadiums and Olympic budgets in general have a very consistent history of running over budget. So the initial $1 billion-ish estimate for this Zaha Hadid Stadium becoming $2 billion, I think any surprises about that are a little bit overblown because we don't have to go too far back or we can go back as far as we need to to see every Olympic stadium go over budget. But this issue kind of came as more of a surprise because all of the construction costs were escalating so quickly, but in the fact that there still were so many reassurances that it would still happen. So what do you guys think of this? Were you surprised to hear that the stadium was going to be canceled? You know, in the stadium architecture world, it seems, yeah, it is pretty surprising that they would get this far along in the project and then cancel it. But having read the press release from Zaha's office and, and, and Will kind of pointed some of this out already on the thread, there's a lot of other internal politics that are going around in Japan that might have been, this might just be a kind of a smokescreen to kind of uh, give the public a bone. And, and I don't, particularly think that's too far off, given the nature of what Japan is proposing to start doing in terms of their military and, and some of their other budgetary issues. But it could also be that uh, the president is also watching Jonathan Oliver, who did a piece on his show on HBO the, week <laughs> of the Sunday prior to this happening, where he pretty much calls anyone, uh, it calls every stadium into question. And so I, you know, I'm being slightly uh, facetious there, but, you know, just thinking about these projects in general, it begs to, begs the question, do these things really need to be this kind of costly, at least on the public dollars? These are typically one-off functions and they don't really serve anything but that one particular event. And after that, they're just kind of sit there and don't really do anything but collect dust. Right. I mean, I tend to see this and a lot of talk has been, you know, Zaha has been slammed that, oh, everyone hates the design. That's why this is being canceled. There's a lot of 
news out there that says that that's not true, that, the, you know, there are a lot of complex reasons, political, social, why this project was canceled. But I tend to think of it, I hope, sort of, as the start of a backlash against these enormously expensive public stadium projects that then use a lot of public money and, and uh, don't really serve anyone beyond either the sports teams that they serve in the United States or other people's political agendas. Oliver Wainwright wrote an excellent article about all of the background of how this project was really sort of endangered from the beginning with some demolition of privately owned houses. And it just, you know, there are a lot of issues with this project. It's not only about Zaha. Now, sadly, I I did note that I saw on Facebook that Patrick Schumacher wrote, posted something saying that basically this is what Fumihiko Maki and Toyo Ito will be remembered for, was their turning their backs on Zaha's proposed stadium. And um, I just don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's what they're going to be remembered for, frankly. It's a, it's a much bigger issue than just the architecture. But to everyone who thinks that architecture is not related to politics, you really need to pay attention. It absolutely is. Every building is based in various people's political agendas. Especially when we're Regardless of what specifics of the design may or may not have included construction costs that helped tip it over the edge, we know that the design was specifically chosen because of this icon with Zaha and having this kind of world-renowned uh, status attached to the design, that we know that Japan was a little bit, I'm not going to use the word hurt, but a little bit reacting to that. They wanted to get something strong and make a strong statement with their choice for the 2020 Olympic design when they lost the 2016 design. So there was a very political choice design built into the selection in the first place. Obviously not directly, but the intention was still there. So I think it's something that we're going to have to keep a keen eye on to see how this, this next competition is run, just because of, it's hard not to be a little bit cynical as to what is going to happen, given that the time scale is now so crunched and they are still saying that they're going to have no problem completing the stadium by 2020. We'll just have to see. But now we're going to move on to the next interview that we have featured in this week's episode with uh, Catherine Darnstead of Latent Design out of Chicago. We initially met Catherine at the AIA National Convention this past May in Atlanta. She was giving a keynote presentation and she just kind of blew us away. Her She was had a great presence, had was very clearly strong-willed, strong-minded and well-spoken. And we got to talk to her briefly at one of the little parties that the AIA was throwing in the context of the convention and asked her to be on the show. And we were so glad to finally have gotten that hooked up. And she joined us just to kind of discuss the nature of her practice, having started it in Chicago and been, from, been raised there, gone to school there and now starting a firm there, her relationship with the city. So let's check in with her now. Well, first to just begin, Catherine, thanks so much for coming on. And one thing that I've always been interested in about your firm, Leighton Design, is the name. Can you tell us about where the name came from? Sure. Leighton Design is really the Looking at the pure definition of the word latent is, and the combination of the firm name is making the invisible visible through the tool of architecture and design. And much of how we see the city and our curiosity and my personal curiosity about making buildings and making cities is the power structures that hide behind the facades of buildings. And so when it came to naming the firm, latent design was the only choice that I think we 
came up with and that I thought of because it was buildings are made by all of these invisible forces that you don't understand in school and you barely understand in practice. And then once you start to understand them, you curse them. And so how can we have ourselves understand that, make that visible, use our firm practice and process and the projects that come out of it as that particular design tool to make that world that shapes our built environment understandable, visible, and then um, better. And you have been based in Chicago for the entire firm's history since starting in 2010. Is that correct? That's correct. And I'm from, and I'm, I'm a Chicagoan anyway. So I was born in the city and then went to both DePaul University and then IIT for my undergrad, studied in Paris and Copenhagen, and then stayed in Chicago for the for some of my early jobs and, and then was laid off in Chicago. So I had no money to go anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a booster for your city kind of by default and by nature. Yes. So in the end, that started to really frame how we go about some of the other initiatives or how we frame the process of our firm is because in the end, you know, I was like, well, okay, if Chicago's it, I'm not going anywhere right now. What do I have to learn about the city and how could I use this as our testing ground? Yeah. And your relationship with Chicago through your varying degrees of work and different types of placemaking projects, architectural projects and community driven projects, it's clear that there's a very strong connection and reaction and um, engagement with the city of Chicago. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, being from there and being trained there and now running a firm there, what your relationship is like to the city and how your work kind of expresses its relationship to the city and the locale? The way it manifests itself is is I can't decouple the citizen side of myself and the architect side. So I have this relationship with the city of understanding pieces of neighborhoods or understanding experiences of neighborhoods from growing up here or being in college and wandering through neighborhoods, both sober and not sober. And you know, mm-hmm. there's this set of how the city works and all of this cartography that I can't undo when we start on a particular site or a project. And then what happened with the placemaking projects is, is that was the early work of the firm are all these very small tactical projects that don't require permits, don't require a lot of building knowledge that are just, they are, they're made on the ability to build a relationship build a power structure and then synthesize a design problem around that. And that doesn't take necessarily a license, but we already I already had that. So how can I apply that additional knowledge to that? And what we overlaid and what I started to see is one little project of making a bench or transforming a vacant lot, even though that took maybe five hours of an activity or maybe a month of design planning, it started a multi-year relationship, whether we wanted it to or not. It was just what happened. So those early projects, developed into now what on average is about two years, 24 months to 30 months that we end up working in a neighborhood from when we start one project to when we finally see a closeout of all the other projects that come from it. So do you have imaginations of doing more placemaking projects or that was kind of something that you thought was a good training ground and it informs you, but might not be as useful to continue pursuing as you're moving on through more grounded projects, more architectural projects? Right. So (laughs) that's funny that you asked that question. There is the architecture side of the firm and then there's the urban design side of the firm and the urban design side of the firm came from the placemaking projects. So there's this bridge in scale of how we work that goes from the largest of buildings and neighborhood master plans all the way 
way down to those benches and small interventions and then wraps back around to meet each other because it makes a whole entire design system. So placemaking projects led to larger scale projects over time. And right now the firm is actually we're about a couple weeks away from launching the city of Chicago's placemaking initiative. So we'll only put us there deeper. We have a three-year contract with the city to lead this development. It will actually expand our neighborhood reach. We'll be working in about half of the city neighborhoods with multiple community partners. And then also it was our first piece of, it's a public-private partnership with the city of Chicago. So that's expanding how our firm functions. We're going from a straight traditional fee-for-design services firm to actually a public-private partner where we're jointly raising money, revenue, and developing sites. So we're actually a developer We're a designer and an architect. We're a contractor. And then we actually wrote our first piece of policy, a new piece of policy around this project. So we became policy wonks, I guess, <laughs> over the past year. That's the only word you get if you work in policy is you're a wonk. Yeah, I don't I don't know what you get otherwise, <laughs> unless you run for office. Catherine, this is Donna. I actually, that leads right into one of my questions, which was, you mentioned that in one of the interviews I read prior to this interview, that uh, one of your favorite things about architecture is the intersection of policy and design and how that impacts the built world, hopefully in positive ways, obviously. I wanted to know if there are two questions. Are there contemporary issues going on right now, specific pieces of policy? that you're excited about, either in a good way or a bad way. And I think a lot of younger architects, especially, including at one time yourself, feel like policy is a little bit out of our wheelhouse. How would you encourage young architects to feel like they can grasp into what public policy is and make a difference in that way? I think we, as architects, we don't view the building code and zoning code necessarily as public policy. And I do think of it that way. It's a mandate on how to build what you can build and why. And I think that was how we entered the public policy realm of how do we start to transform the built environment. With the policy piece in the new municipal ordinance that we wrote for our placemaking contract, we had a very simple premise of we wanted to bring the idea of bringing back concession stands and micro retail structures, you know, small little pop-up retail structures of about 200, 300, 400 square feet or less to the public right-of-way in the city of Chicago. That was the brief because we saw an opportunity to look at changing all the vacant space that the city owns, which is mostly concrete space. It's also vacant lots, but some of it is also public right away and concrete. How do we take some of that and bring more energy, more initiatives, more community and more commerce? How do you get those layers of a city on a site itself? And when we, we got into it, we saw that everything that the city referenced or people referenced was totally illegal to do on the public right away. <laughs> so was pretty, of course. So the easiest thing was like, hey, can we just make that legal? And by making it legal and bringing the idea of a newspaper stand concept, but switching it into a retail, what's now called micro retail or nomadic retail, it tied right into a larger trend within the sales and retail industry, which we didn't know about at the time, but have been fortuitous to learn about since then, brought that back to life. Because what's interesting, when we got into this policy search, you get into a history search inadvertently, because when you look at zoning, you you look at your zoning code, and then it has amendments to it. And so you see when the code was first written, and then you see the amendment in the year, and the amendment in the year, and amendment in the year. So 
so by reading through that, you get this inadvertent history lesson of how the city worked. And so by reading that, what we saw is newspaper stands, which were honestly one of the first small business structures that were dominant in minority, low income neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, and maybe many other cities experience have this same history. Well, at first, they were allowed everywhere. And then it, then they were zoned out of the central business district. And then other council people would zone it out of their district. And you could watch, you could make this map of seeing how those structures became illegal over time. And so we looked at that and said, well, if that's the first micro retail concept that we're familiar with, how do we switch that now? Because our neighborhoods and the a barrier to vibrant public space, as well as vibrant commercial and streetscapes is the access to information, the access to space and the access to capital. So if there's this gap between startup and storefront, how do we put a structure there that allows for the showcase of small businesses, arts and culture activity, you know, performance, everything all on one site. And that was the first policy initiative that we pushed all the way through. It took about a year of coordination and seven different departments to just make a stupid 200 square foot box. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Catherine, this is uh, Ken. So one of the things I really liked about is looking at your website and looking at your work. And I love all of the work. And typically, from what I've seen, your work is in types or areas that really don't typically get amazing design and but get people feeling good about they've accomplished something. Can you talk to how you're able to do the design you're able to with tight budgets and multiple stakeholders? And then when you were talking about your firm name, the one thing that came to mind in this question was making the invisible visible. How do you bring the underserved communities and communities of color, bring their voice to the table so that they have a sense that they have a stake in this work and that their voice is reflected in it? When we do that, I think it first starts is we're, our work has never been led by the architecture or the design side. It's always been led by here we are as humans, here we are as citizens. And, you know, that has become part of the quote unquote human centered design field, right? You lead with yourself. You don't lead with the problem or you don't lead with the solution, which is one thing that architects have been criticized for is that we lead with a solution before we even know the problem. And understanding my own city over time and having experienced it at so many different levels, I understand that the problem is a systemic problem, that the answer is probably never going to be a building if we want to actually solve it in terms of an equity or empathy or social justice way. So how do we also start to wrap in all of these other critical factors into our projects itself. So when it comes to placemaking or building projects or community center, we're looking at the intersection of not only design and policy, but design and public health, design and streetscape, design and arts and culture, and wrapping all of them together and in our work itself. So was that something that you think you were really engendered and, and taught how to do in architecture education? Or is that something you kind of had to feel your way and realize was, in fact, the way you wanted to approach your work once you were starting the practice? It was a vertical learning curve of in the <laughs> field. 
that's what it was when I started my practice. I didn't learn it in school. We didn't talk about it in school. And that's what actually piqued my interest. So when I went to IIT at that time, I was there from 2001 to 2005. And during that time, the Robert Taylor homes just south of the site were demoed and then were starting their reconstruction process. And in the School of Architecture itself, we weren't having a conversation school-wide on what was going on literally across the street. So you could find professors who wanted to talk about that or had the housing studios, but school-wise, we weren't having a conversation on that at all. And because of that, I became very curious in affordable housing and then studied abroad in both Paris and Copenhagen and met with architects and just saw how housing and social structures were looked at wildly differently than in the U.S. Came back to the U.S. and then worked for affordable housing firms and developers in Chicago and then was laid off from one of those firms. Took that understanding of the system, the design system around the built environment and started to apply that to latent design of looking at a way to use design to bridge the gaps of where not only the power structures are inverted in communities. So we were talking about using design, as Ken was saying, using design to give a voice to those who weren't empowered in some of our work or some of our neighborhood partners. And then I also saw it as we have to use design to give architects a voice because our power structure is inverted when it comes to the development process in a city. We don't make buildings. We're the last one to make a building. Catherine, since the first time speaking with you and speaking now, the one thing that comes through when when talking with you is this clarity of purpose and this kind of very confident voice about these issues. Is this something that's personally connected? Are you personally connected in some way? Or is this just something that you've in your studies abroad that you just saw something in the city that made you that brought you to that connection? Or is it more personal? You know, I think it's it's always personal. I mean, again, I'll, I'll go back to I can't decouple the architect side from the citizen side. You know, so I live in the city, so I have to go by my projects. I have to go by our partners. I They influence where we buy a house or where we go to school or where I decide to raise my child. That is all influential. So I can't, I can't decouple the two. So it is incredibly personal for me of all of this work. Sometimes it does get in the way and it becomes a hazard. And other times it's been incredibly beneficial. So there is maybe as the firm grows, those lines can't be so blurry anymore. And I'll have to find a way to manage that. Having other people in the firm almost in a way become a buffer for me and think about things a little bit more strategically where I just carry a lot of passion and I'll wear my emotion on my sleeve in many of the projects and and many of the people I encounter enjoy that and the other half don't. And that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the one other question I had for you was um, when I did speak with you in Atlanta, the one sense I had from speaking with you is that you didn't give fucks, (laughs) that you were confident and comfortable in your own skin doing the work that you were doing. And then I read your starting your own firm piece. And that sense of who you were uh, kind of came through that document. But the one thing that kind of set me back a little bit, I mean, I already know this about our profession, how lame it is at times, but I was still taken aback by the comments that you would get from design professionals, whether they're sexist or racist. Could you talk a little bit to that? And I guess the follow-up would be, can there be a discussion? Can there be a conversation, quote-unquote conversation, or do we just need to shut these people down or should we just not give fucks and just step over them? I think that's a really good question. I mean, I've experienced, and I know I'm not the only one in this profession at all who's experienced this, 
But every ism, so whether that's sexism, racism, ageism, in the course of five years of having a practice, it's it's all been there. Some of the situations are much more egregious than others. And so there's the everyday and then there's the egregious. And it's been a complete range that, um, that I've experienced. And I'm sure other women and men and individuals have experienced it as well. It's hard because we do have in the profession, we do have very polite conversations about this and we have diversity quotas that we look at and we have enlightened individuals in our field. But I think we don't have enough people who maybe, as you said it, who don't give fucks and just will hit it head on. I think we have to look at who the spokespersons are for our industry, whether that's an organization or that's individuals, and make sure that those spokespeople align with in our beliefs as the majorities and the minorities in the field. And I think that's where we have to find our agency and voice as architects to take stands, to take positions, and to really address some of the inequities that we see, not only in the built environment, but then we have to make sure we're not replicating it within our own field. That actually relates to what I wanted to ask you specifically about. You said you received the AI Chicago Young Architect of the Year Award, I believe. Right. In 2013. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I thought I, I was floored that I won it because I, as Ken said, I have a very particular way of having confidence. And I put together that presentation and that packet. And I was like, yes, I'm going to only do the work that we're doing that we want to show. And it was the urban design, the placemaking, the engagement, the academic pieces. And I put it all together, sent it off. And then like the moment it got mailed, I was like, that was the dumbest thing I could have done. There wasn't a single (laughs) building. There were no buildings in the application. I go, what did I just do? Did I just submit a portfolio for an architecture award with <laughs> like no architecture? This is so bad. Okay, good thing I'm I'm still young for like eight more years. Yeah, so that's okay. I'll try again next year. But it was it was incredibly it was humbling. It was inspiring, and it actually gave me a lot of inspiration and confidence in the field to see that there was a potential for a shift that I think has become part of repositioning within the AIA, part of conversations within the firm, and then a showcase of different types of examples of who are architects and who makes architecture and in what way. Yeah. And that exactly was what I was getting to was that in that award, when you won that award, Scott Rapp said you were redefining the role of an architect. And I feel like we're in this phase of all of us through the AIA and people who are not licensed. You said you are licensed, correct? Yeah, I have been, yeah. And people who are not licensed are still thinking about it. I feel like the conversation is really around how the role of an architect is really changing. And we're doing all this kind of work that's not maybe buildings, maybe it's other kinds of work. And I wanted to know if you had any kind of preconception of what the role of an architect is or what an architect looks like that you at some specific point lost, or was it just uh, changing over time? You know, was there a specific event where you looked up and said, well, that's not what I want to be? Or was it just something that that as you continue to work, you said, yeah, what I'm doing is architecture? You know, some people have asked, you know, have questioned and, and said, well, what you do, you're not a traditional architect, so what do you call yourself? And I'm just like, I'm I'm an architect. Like that's, it's always like, so I've never thought the work that I have done and then what built the firm around wasn't ever architecture. I mean, I could honestly say that we probably don't detail buildings the best right now because we're learning that at the same time. I mean, it's still incredibly nascent. Architecture is an experience-based profession. And that's part of the reason why we have a median age of 50 because experience is based on this apprenticeship. But I think what 
the firm is starting to do and what I hold very dear of being a principal of it is I don't particularly care if my employees know Revit. I want them to know reason. And I'm not interested in making future architects. I'm interested in making future founders and people who can make the next part of the built environment even better. Because part of being first and where I think we're at the as a small firm where small firms are the ones that innovate out in the leading edge and everything that we do is you know somewhat pretty bad like it's not great but it's good and so the reason that we put it out there is so somebody can do it better and that's what I look at so I always look at everyone in the firm is like please go out there and do it better and part of being very honest is like this is how much we made and this is our structure and this is how we format our contracts and I don't care if you know that I charge two hundred dollars an hour as a principal rate but then I also draft and I get paid like $50 an hour in reality. Like that's just, I don't care about that. Just go and make it better. I'll be the first, I'll fall on my face and someone will, you know, run over my dead body and they'll do it better and win. (laughs) That's what you have to do. (laughs) Exactly. You got to get it out there. You get the work out there. So for those not in Chicago or who maybe who haven't had a chance to see your work in the flesh, can you describe maybe both a smaller, not explicitly architectural placemaking project that you've done while all, and then also explain one of these larger, perhaps ongoing urban design projects that you're involved in? Absolutely. Okay. So one of the first projects that out of the gate, when I started late in design, I was also volunteering with Architecture for Humanity, the Chicago chapter, and I was their executive director, volunteer, of course, for three years. And one of the first projects that we designed with Architecture for Humanity was Fresh Moves Mobile Market, which was a mobile market inside a decommissioned CTA bus. So that project was the first example and really shaped what latent design does right now. Currently, what our process and our point of view is in the firm, because we basically designed everything but the food for that particular produce bus. When the organization came to us to with the brief, they had a really amazing idea and a white paper and they had nothing else. So they had no name. We named Fresh Moves. They had no website. We brought in and leveraged our graphic design friends to help with some of the branding and all the collateral for that. They had no bus. So we made the first deck and actually attended some of the first meetings with the city of Chicago to get the contract in place to get the bus because they, as a partner, not only saw how much we brought to the table from a design standpoint, but then also saw how powerful those images and the way we spoke about the system of design, how much that aligned with what they were trying to get it as well of restoring access in these neighborhoods. So that project progressed to be an example of mobile markets in urban environments. It won multiple awards. It received USDA grants. They ultimately, it scaled up too big and then completely crashed and burned. And now just a week or so ago, relaunched again under a new organization, still fresh moves, but a little tweaks to it. So it's already in the second iteration of a concept that we developed back in 2010, 2011, which is incredibly interesting to be able to see that revision process happen in real time. And what was funny about that project, which kind of set me on the, I I guess maybe it's the sarcasm that maybe our work has and that I have is we put up 
So Architecture for Humanity and American Institute of Architects of Chicago chapter has a small projects award. And it's an amazing, amazing award. And it's just to showcase the different types of small projects and small firms that are out there. And they had one category the first year that they launched the awards, which was called Small Object. So it was an object that was made for $50,000 or less. And we did that bus and that whole entire project for $30,000. So I put together the submittal packet for Fresh Moves, put it all together. And I was like, we're going to win because we made a bus. Like, who is going to come in there and <laughs> like, not have this? And we lost to a chandelier made out of hand-blown <laughs> beer bottles. And I kind of had <laughs> a total what-the-fuck moment. Like, oh, there was a moment where I started to think, like, maybe this industry that I love and the people that I've worked with so closely and essentially the really activist architects that I had come to know know in working around that bus, maybe they really were the minority and maybe we really were small and weak and everything like that. And it, it kind of was a critical turning point early on in latent design. And then also like my own point of view of this field. Luckily, about Three weeks later, we won the first Architizer A Plus Award, which I, you know, was at that time the inaugural award for architecture plus farming. So we we swept that category, and <laughs> that made me feel a little bit better, and it, it like restored faith in the architecture community because I think Architizer is moving is one of those small pieces that became very large that became the innovator and that the field is catching up to. So having recognition from that peer group was incredibly validating and empowering. And Fresh Moves Now is going to be part of another, an upcoming Smithsonian exhibit. So, you know, I guess anymore, none of the people that were part of that early project, we're all really okay that we never won an architecture award. (laughs) So (laughs) in a traditional sense. And that was a project where it was starting to frame that mindset where I wanted to make future founders, where everyone on the team and that project took 18 months. And we had about 50 unique individuals that worked on that and made sure that every individual that was at the time during the recession that was underemployed or unemployed, they actually walked away from that project with better portfolios than any one of their peers because they won awards. They set, made a new system. They made a replicable system that has been copied multiple times across the nation. And there's a way of thinking and an experience that was incredibly unique for them to be part of and a team. And they understand the difference of designing with versus by or for. And I think that experience and that process is what's going to shift the field of architecture, of an understanding of power structures and what it truly means to collaborate. And that it's not a panacea, that it's incredibly hard to do. So are there any other large projects going on right now that you'd like to discuss? The largest one that we have, we were working in now the historic Pullman National Monument area of Chicago, and we are working on a slow redesign of one of the historic structures and then a new construction community center adjacent to that building. So that's been a negotiated project over the past six months or so. The project's even longer than that when we first met the client, but we're negotiating the sale with the city of Chicago on that particular project. And then we'll start work, hopefully, fingers crossed, all of the approvals come in, but we'll be working on a small block size redesign for an affordable housing and community development plan down in 
the Woodlawn Washington Park neighborhood of Chicago. So that's going to where it looks like we'll have the go ahead to redesign everything from zoning code to building code. What does a community development plan look like for this particular group of clients that we have that becomes a public private partnership around new communities? And so we're very excited to look at a tiny block, but then to take apart everything. Very cool. Well, not to bring up too much in the terms of cynicism and difficulties in dealing with the more philanthropic avenues of the profession, but you did serve on the Chicago Architecture for Humanity for some time. And then, as we all know, that company is no longer in practice, so to speak. Do you have anything that you gleaned from that experience about the difficulties of running an organization like that and working as an architect in that kind of field? Yeah, I have a lot of opinions about that. Even it's the national organization that went bankrupt and, you know, it's not the chapters. And I think while it was shocking and not shocking at the same time, what I find strengthen is the community of chapter leaders and chapter network and their projects that had always banded together because we had no support from the national leadership. They just essentially, it was like an Uber model, you know, essentially <laughs> we do all the work and they get all, you know, all the, the power and the, the press from using chapter projects in different ways. So I saw that. I saw, you know, maybe our industry in a way is an Uber model where where our work as professionals is built on the labor and the expertise of our formerly known as interns, right? And then also we had to look at, and what I learned is founder syndrome is a very real thing. It can happen in non-for-profits and it can happen in for-profits. And so knowing your expiration date is incredibly powerful. And knowing when you have to leave or when this initiative is over or something needs to pivot. So I am so proud of everything that the chapter did and that all the chapters did and the people who came out of it, who are amazing architects, who are amazing community designers, who taught me how to listen and to understand larger design systems. Because without that initial entry into having the latitude to do projects in the particular way that we work now as latent design, latent design wouldn't exist because we would have never had that experience to do something like that. Or we, and I might not have had the courage to ever try. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. Ken, did you have a question? Yeah. So I, I got two questions for you. Pretty straightforward. They're going to catch you off base because they're not on the list of questions. <laughs> um, but what are you reading right now? And, and what kind of music are you listening to? I am not reading anything worthwhile. I try and read The Economist every week. So I try and block out like 90 minutes somewhere on a weekend where I hide from everyone in my household and my family and try and read just to get caught up on daily pieces of information. I just got done reading City Contracts and for the past year. So I would like love to pick up Fifty Shades of Grey and turn my head (laughs) off. That's the kind of thing. Yeah. What what kind of pulpy thing are you reading right now? (laughs) I don't I don't have a pulpy thing quite yet. I'm going to I'm going to find a good bee tree. You know, I am going to find a bee tree. Like I said, I'll read The Economist every week and then I haven't picked up anything else. But I will admit that I do partake in lots of celebrity gossip via the Internet. So I know a lot about the Kardashians and, you know, and I don't mind it so much. That's how I turn my brain off is be like, wow, it it could be worse. I could be rich, but I also could be a Kardashian. And so, like, you know, what's the trade off here? Well, since you're 
interested in gossip. What's your opinion on uh, Patrick Schumacher's endorsement of Lieberland? Lieberland. Was this in the past like, week? Okay. Does that ring a bell, Catherine? If not, you don't need to answer. It's not, no, it we don't need to go into the whole background. Sorry. That tells you that you're not spending the majority of your time looking at other architects' Facebook profiles where they, where they post <laughs> things like this. I'm not Facebook friends with Patrick Schumacher, unfortunately. <laughs> Any musical endorsements to make? I do have musical endorsements. I have been listening to the D'Angelo album, the new one, Black Magic, for probably whenever I'm the only one in the office, I will turn it out very loud and just listen to it maybe twice through. (laughs) <laughs> that's good for me. <laughs> Very nice. That's a great one. We'll uh, we'll share that with all of our other architects who are in need of a playlist. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Catherine. It was so great talking to you after the first initial meeting at AIA Convention 2015. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I mean, I think more of these conversations need to happen and maybe very candidly between other architects as well. I think it's part of we all have an opinion and we all can make a stand and we have the tools to be we have a a phone in our pocket, which essentially gives us a multimedia international broadcast platform. So I, I hope we start using it a little bit more. So those two hefty interviews are going to wrap up our 39th episode of our Connect Sessions today. Well, let's jump into endorsements. I'm going to first offer a piece that became very close to my heart as I was writing it, which is the piece about architect-specific license plates issued by the New York State Department of Motor Vehicles. This little doodad, this little factoid I came across when trying to delve deep into the public records of the California DMV to try to figure out who on earth or what on earth designs their DMV. DMV offices and their various field positions because they're all terrible. And this is obviously public knowledge, but who designed them and whether they were designed at all was not. Um, So I started poking into the DMV and found in New York State, if you are a registered architect there, you can get a specific license plate that says you're an architect. And it has architect written at the bottom and the letters A and R to the left of your numbers. And I just thought it was the most hilarious vanity expression for an architect to tack themselves onto. The annual fee, I believe, was like $30 and then there's a first-time fee of 60 bucks. So first of all, if anyone, any registered architect in New York has this plate, please get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. And if any other state has this plan or this program with specific professions getting their own vanity license plates, please also be in touch. I couldn't find any other states that happen to have an architect program, but I'd love to be proven wrong. And so I'd love for people to share their uh, involvements with vanity license plates and architecture. Please be in touch. So that article is, in New York, you can get a vanity license plate made special for architects. Do you know what I'd love to see? What, Paul? I would love to see the ultimate Seinfeld New York license plate, an architect license plate with ass man. Okay, so the golden ticket, whoever first gets that, first of all, we have to assume that Asman isn't already taken. But because I also think you can't get like a second degree of specialization through the vanity license plate. So it's not as if there are two Asman license plates, one for the amateur radio broadcaster license plate (laughs) and one for the architect vanity license plate. We'll get there. We'll get to the ideal Seinfeld license plate. And then he can be on that show where Seinfeld drives fancy cars around and takes comedians out for coffee. And then get an Arconnect t-shirt. Yes. (laughs) There's your motivation. Yeah. All right, Ken, do you have something to endorse this week? Yeah, I have, uh, was reading this piece on another website uh, about uh, a pop-up art show in the Bronx being used as a device for gentrification, which I thought was pretty interesting in light of our conversation recently about the poor door and how certain communities are represented in 
these kinds of issues around uh, the built environment. And I thought it was particularly interesting in that I'm not sure how often architects really take into account what they're actually doing and where it's going and they're the ultimate results of their work in a particular community. And I thought this was important. Having been on the local, my neighborhood community organization, I thought it was pretty interesting to see how uh, something like this can be used in a way that is has the appearance of one thing, but the reality is uh, something completely different. So I thought it's a it's probably always existed, but I think it's becoming more apparent and probably more reviled than anything, um, these kinds of shows. So it's, uh, I thought it was a pretty good piece. Donna, what about you? Do you have anything to endorse this week? I have two endorsements. One is a news article that I actually put up, which was a link to an interview online at Tank Magazine of Liam Young. And the catchphrase for it is, an architect skills are completely wasted on making buildings. And this is more of the shtick that I have been going with for the last few years here, where we're talking about non-traditional ways of practice, people who have the training and education of an architect, but then use those skills in other realms. And I just wanted to quote very briefly from the article. There's a thing where he says he was working on timber detailing for private beach houses. He was working for Starkitects, designing science museum, opera art gallery, Dubai projects, all of which in the context of making and shaping cities right now is utterly fucking irrelevant. The notion of what cities are and how we define them is such a fundamental mentally different thing right now. So it's a it's an interesting and fun article with Liam Young. And um, you can find that on Arconnect. And there was a very good discussion that popped up after it, of course, and uh, has continued on Twitter and other places as well. The other endorsement I want to make is a very personal one, which is last Sunday night at the Indianapolis Film Fest, I went and saw the movie A Space Program by Tom Sachs. Tom Sachs is a uh, very famous artist who happens to be married to the daughter of an Indianapolis resident. And so he frequents Indianapolis with his uh, in-laws sometimes. And uh, he came to do to make the presentation of the movie. And we watched the movie and there was a panel discussion and then a party afterwards. And Tom studied at the AA as an architect and uh, left it and went on to found his art studio in Manhattan. And he has popped up on Arconnect every now and again with some of his videos that he calls industrials, which are short videos that are like the one that was most recently on the site was a pay on to plywood. And it's just a beautiful little filmed bit about plywood and how wonderful it is. <laughs> and he's got them about concrete and he's got them about drill bits. And, you know, he's really a materials guy. And I think it's the kind of thing that architects just love. So the movie is called A Space Program. And I highly recommend it if you see it at your local film festival, which is, I think, the only place you're likely to see it. So, Paul, what about you? Do you have some endorsements or news this week? Yeah, well, before I get to my endorsement, I just want to mention that this is actually the second to last episode of what we are calling here season one of our podcast. So does this mean people can binge listen? Can... <laughs> yeah, please take a, a cumulative like a billion hours out of your schedule to uh, binge listen to the first 40 episodes of our next season. We will be releasing all 40 episodes on audio tape. Um <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, released by KTEL. <laughs> Sounds of the sessions on yeah. KTEL. Hey. <laughs> but yeah, so going on to season two, we're going to be seeing some changes to the podcast. And we're also going to be asking you, our lovely listeners, to give us some feedback about what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to see more of, you know, 
if you have a wish list. But we're going to be talking about that on next week's episode in more depth. So yeah. And then moving forward, my endorsement is something I mentioned last week. We're going to be launching a big competition on Monday. Competition's called Dry Futures. And it's an ideas competition seeking future-focused design responses to California's drought. And we've already got a really great jury lined up. It's going to be, I think, an important topic to try to find some good ideas from the design community, which is a community that often has some great ideas. And we'd like to share those with with people. And we've got some great media outlets that are going to be covering it, some newspapers that, that are lined up to cover it. And uh, yeah, we're really excited about that. So watch out for that on Monday. It's going to be launching on Monday. So we'll be posting a link to that from Arconnect. So just go to Arconnect.com and you'll find it. And I think that's it for this week, for this second to last episode of season one. Thanks to everybody for joining us. As always, you can reach out to us via email at connect at arconnect.com or Twitter with uh, hashtag Arconnect Sessions. Um, if you subscribe to our podcast, we'd love for you to rate and or review it. And until next week, until our final episode next week, we bid you farewell. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.